0: which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Romain Bostick, Taylor Riggs and Joe Weisenthal. What would you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. On Monday, we got a taste for a mega billion dollar chip deal. Analog Devices agreed to acquire rival Maxim for 21 billion in stock in a bid to challenge Texas Instruments. The combined company will be valued at about 68 billion dollars. We spoke about the deal with Analog Devices CEO Vince Roach and asked Paul well, about the scale he is seeking with the new combined company and where he wants to beef up.
2: Yeah, very good question. Thank you. So I think the uh, if you look at the strength of ADI, it really is in the industrial market. It's, it's half of the company's revenue today uh, and communication. So I think uh, the combination of ADI and Maxim will give us a lot more strength in areas like automotive. For example, power systems um, and interconnectivity systems, along with in areas like data center, the uh, the uh, core power portfolios that deliver the energy to the big, very very high wattage processing units. So, and obviously, uh, you know our healthcare businesses are also quite complementary. So, uh, I view digital health. As a tremendous growth driver for ADI and for the industry in the years ahead. So those are some examples of the complementarity from an application standpoint.
1: Complementary, seeking scale, but with scale sometimes comes regulatory risk. And I'm interested, Vince, from your perspective, in terms of, yes, we saw NVIDIA get its deal done, its acquisition of Mellanox went through, particularly with the Chinese regulators. Are you worried in any way about the global regulators and how they might analyze your combination?
2: Yeah, well, Caroline, we've spent a lot of time, obviously, trying to understand the regulatory risks. Uh, Generally speaking, the portfolios at a technology level between ourselves and Vaxom are very complementary. There's always some risk, uh, but uh, my sense is we've thought through that well. And uh, when I look at some of the acquisitions that have been cleared across the globe in the last three, six months, uh, my confidence is high based on the advice we've received as well as the a regulatory process and how it's played out across the globe.
3: So with regards to just the general makeup of your business now, within the context of some of the geopolitics that have been taking place, do you see any sort of detailed risk to being a company that does span across so many borders in the way that you do now?
2: No, I think one of the uh, one of the great facets or characteristics of our business is diversity across uh, products, applications, geographies, customers. And, um, you know, while it's always hard to divine precisely what's going to happen on the political side of things, we don't view that as a significant risk in, um, in the regulatory process.
4: So, Vince, are you not concerned then, given the politics, given the rising trade tensions, about some of your supply chain risk and moving some of the supply chains that you have out of China, for example?
2: Well, we actually, uh, both companies, both ADI and Maxim, actually have very, very, very little manufacturing at all in China. So, um you know, I think we have a good spread of manufacturing capabilities in terms of making the silicon itself, doing the, the packaging technologies as well as the testing of our products. It's very globally distributed uh, across Asia, as well as America and Europe. Uh, so specific to manufacturing in China, we actually have uh, almost no concern about that, just given the lack of activity.
1: Vince, why did you go for an all stock deal?
2: Good question. Uh, so at this point in time, we were looking at two things. Number one would be uh, you know, the combination of the company and the value that we can generate over the long term and what that would mean to the shareholders of the stock. So we are very confident given our track record of acquisitions and what has actually happened with uh, the stock of our company uh, post acquisition once we begin to realize synergies, both on the top line as well as the the cost synergies. Um, Also, I mean, just managing in this environment, being able to manage the downside, the downside risk of uh, a very, very uncertain macro environment and a very volatile stock market. So I think being able to do an all stock deal gives us tremendous um, cushion on the downside and also given that our stocks have traded uh, in sync For so many years at a very very at a kind of a a power value level um an exchange rate level uh it it makes a lot of sense to do stuff
3: um so vince I, i can understand the the scaling up aspect of this and one of the main criticisms uh for not only for your company but really of a lot of the analog uh chip makers is this idea of cyclicality and the idea that as you sort of move into these businesses or scale up or even expand and broaden out, you essentially make yourself even more cyclical than you did before. Is there, what is sort of your strategy going forward where you can maybe blunt some of that cyclical impact down the road?
2: Yeah, so one of the diversity in, in terms of our product SKUs, uh, the types of products that we develop, the markets that we target, uh, that diversity, you know, we have more than 50,000 product SKUs in the portfolio. Um, and, you know, there are always sectors of the economy doing better than other sectors. And um, as I said, ABI very, very strong in industrial, maximum strong in automotive. And um, I think we have a nicely balanced portfolio now. It's, it's even better balanced than it was. And if I just take the last several months, particularly with the onslaught of Mm. COVID-19, what has meant to our business, you know, while economic activity has been muted across the globe, um, certain sectors of our business have done particularly well, like healthcare, for example, not a big surprise, as well as advanced communication systems. um, And then um, 5G technology that's at the I would say the uh, very, very early stage of deployment across the globe. So I think diversity is, is the great hedge against volatility in markets.
1: And I have to say to that end, it's no wonder therefore you both raised your guidance on revenue today. And that's notable in, in current economic circumstances. Right. I, I'm also interested, just Vince, from an anecdotal point of view, how do you get a deal done in a time of COVID? Did you, was it all via Zoom or, or on the phone? Hey. How, I guess you didn't meet the, the other Maxim CEO.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, Caroline. So you're absolutely right. This, this deal uh, was done completely virtually uh, from the time we started negotiating about 90 days ago, uh, right through the process, uh, all of the meetings, the due diligence, all done virtually. Uh, but I will say the fact that uh, the CEO of Max and Tunch Deluca and myself have known each other for many, many years. We've got a, a relationship basis of trust. Uh, It certainly made things very, very doable virtually. In fact, it may have speeded up the deal.
1: On Monday, we also got some big news with Washington's NFL team announcing it will retire its name and logo in a response to mounting pressure by sponsors and other financial partners over concerns that the name is a racist slur to Native Americans. It is a stark reversal by the team's principal owner, Dan Snyder, who for years refused even to entertain the possibility. We spoke about the decision with George Pine, he's founder and CEO of Bruins Sports Capital, and asked if there is any parallel for this name and branding change and how he thinks the fan base will react.
5: The issue that you can be on, and that's on the side of being welcoming, of diversity and uh, making all people feel comfortable and welcome to be a Washington uh, fan. And so today's day and age, which is refreshing, That's the only place you can be. And if there's downside with it, there's downside with it. I think long-term, it's good for business, and long-term, it would be good for the National Football League.
1: George, you yourself have helped trans- transform some of these big sports brands. You've got experts, a team of experts over with you over the last three decades doing this. How does the Washington NFL team now rebrand? What sort of name does it look for? There's plenty of coverage saying how hard the trademark is and already trademarked Scott is out there. But what does it look to move past this with optimism?
5: Well, this is a big uh, deal. On one hand, you know symbols matter today. So I think it's a strong statement and heading in the right direction. But there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of consideration. You know, when we sold the Nextel sponsorship at NASCAR for 950 million, we took 12 months to transition from a tobacco product to Nextel. I don't think uh, Washington's gonna have that luxury. So you have to think about all your constituents and, and try and make the best decision you can. But you really want to be inclusive and welcoming. And this is a strong statement. Look, this is the number seven most valuable franchise in the National Football League worth billions of dollars, uh, reacting and wanting to do the right thing here. So I think it's a good thing for society and a good thing for the NFL.
4: George, talk to us more about the business aspect of this, the licensing deals, a potential new stadium uh, that the team could be looking at. What does it mean from the financial perspective?
5: You know, the consumer product side is really not a big side, although those partnerships with Nikes and others is important. Where this really is hitting is the intrinsic value of the franchise. So, you know, the Redskins would like a new facility. Well, they're not going to get the public support and funding for a new facility if they're not viewed as inclusive and welcoming to all Americans. Additionally, I think today, corporations now are not going to be involved with organizations that aren't welcoming and inclusive. So I think what's driving this from a business standpoint is the desire for a new facility and being welcoming uh, with corporations, along with doing the right thing for the consumers out there. But certainly... The sponsors and the new stadium played a role in this decision.
3: Yeah. George, so I want to get your thoughts on the broader sports world and the potential restart of some of the professional sports leagues. We know the NBA, MLS, were are supposed to get started soon down there uh, in Disney World, down there in Florida, I should say. Uh, it's not quite certain if that's still going to go off as planned. Where do you see us right now? Do you think the leagues are willing to continue to push forward with the restart uh, of actual play, even though there's still some concerns about... Um, Test, players testing positive, et cetera?
5: Well, I kind of take a step back and say, when you look around the world, when you look in Europe, they're playing soccer. Or they're playing sport in Australia, New Zealand. They're playing baseball in Thailand. So sports can be played safely and are being sa- played safely in the pandemic. And here in America, you know, NASCAR has been operating for five or six weeks. Looks, by all accounts, to be quite safe, going well. Same thing with the PGA Tour. has been competing each week. MLS has started. Uh, They had to send two teams home and had to cancel a few games. But again, uh, the safety of the players had been first and foremost. So it's been choppy and and tricky, but they are moving forward, which I think for the overall sports business is good. And I think for society, it's good to have something to root for. And I suppose root against from time to time. (laughs)
1: George, going back to the push in the US in particular for racial equality, it's something that you mentioned, NASCAR. NASCAR's been uh, tied up within within Bubba Wallace coverage. There's also a continuing debate, not only with what happens in Washington NFL, but there's plenty of other teams that still have names that perhaps are suggestive of particularly offensive to many, particularly Native Americans. I'm, I'm interested in how a company now, how a sports team gets ahead of this, looks to make change before forced to by some of its main backers and sponsors.
5: I think you're going to have to be very, you can't be tone deaf. You're going to have to be progressive and you're going to have to be welcoming and you're going to have to move quickly. In this world that we live in, with digital and social media, you know, things and trends are moving quickly. And I think as all Americans, which I think is a good thing, it's time for social justice. It's time to make statements. And as we said, silence is saying something, but symbols say something too. So I think if I was advising a sports team, like you said, Caroline, I'd be out in front of it I'd be out in front of it because it's good business. It's the right thing to do. It's right for the fans and consumers. But I do think the sponsors and other media partners are going to push that along as well. So I see change coming, and I think change is a good thing. It's it's about time.
6: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
7: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: This week saw a number of high-profile hacks. Twitter is racing to get to the bottom of its worst security breach ever that impacted 130 major accounts, including that of Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and even our majority owner, Mike Bloomberg. Twitter says the perpetrators gained control of a subset of those accounts and were able to send tweets. No one's passwords were stolen. Now this all coincided with the news that Russian intelligence is working to steal crucial COVID-19 vaccine research. The UK, US and Canadian governments are putting the blame on the Russian intelligence Cozy Bear Group, the same one that was implicated alongside Fancy Bear in the 2016 hack at the Democratic National Committee. To get a better sense of both of these stories, we spoke with Michael Chertoff. Now, Michael formerly served as US Secretary of Homeland Security under President George W. Bush. He is now the executive chair and co-founder of the Chertoff Group, which helps clients assess, mitigate and monitor cybersecurity threats. He started by asking the secretary about the general fear, not that, well, celebrities' accounts were hacked, but the vulnerability that someone as powerful as President Trump could have their account hacked and wreak some havoc.
7: Well, I mean, that's part of a general concern we have with disinformation campaigns, which are efforts, in some cases, to masquerade as legitimate people who might be on social media and use that impersonation to promote extreme views or uh, dis- dissension. You know, a version of this is what they call deep fake fakes, where you actually use a computer-generating image to create sound and voice that looks, for all intents and purposes, like a real person doing and saying something which is not what they've actually done. I think with respect to Twitter, you know, the concern is, are they adequately double-checking the identity of the people posting on a regular basis. And also they need to get to the bottom of how it is that somebody on the inside was persuaded or tricked into turning over essentially the keys to the kingdom. Mm -hmm.
1: I don't want us to cast aspersions here, but do you have a theory of what could have been behind The crypto hack, and and also as we look towards the U.S. election in November, how worrying is it that Russia still seems to be so prevalent when it comes to cyber attacks, this time regarding COVID too?
7: Well, I'd be speculating about the crypto hack. It it looks like a criminal motivation, an effort to get basically some kind of funding. Whether that was launched by a nation state or by a criminal group, I don't think we know yet. Uh, Historically in the past, North Korea has used cyber tools in order to try to steal money, and they, in fact, have stolen, you know, millions and millions of dollars. I think for the election, what we're worried about are a couple of things. We're worried about uh, misinformation that's put out there to interfere with people's understanding of how to vote and where to vote. We're worried about last-minute trick uh, information put out there to cast aspersions at one of the candidates in order to discourage his supporters from voting or encourage supporters of the opponent to vote, who are worried about an attack on critical infrastructure Hmm. that might shut the lights off in a city, particularly one which is known as a very blue city. So all of these, I think, are reasons why cybersecurity is front and center as we talk about how to safeguard our November election.
3: So, but what is that safeguard? Or where should it originate, Michael? Because right now, at least with the social media platforms, uh, there's the general sense that they should police themselves. Um, I I would assume there would have to be some sort of U.S. government apparatus that is at least backstopping some of this, particularly if they can trace it to uh, foreign governments uh, in some way or another. Are are you... Is there, what, what sort of apparatus do you think is in place or should be in place to maybe make sure that we feel a little bit safer about these platforms and their involvement in our electoral process?
7: So this is an all-hands-on-deck issue. It's not gonna be any one group that owns this. I will tell you that at my old agency, Homeland Security, the unit that's involved with cybersecurity, CISA, S-I-S-A, is working hard, for example, with local election officials to secure their databases and give them advice on how to protect themselves. I'm involved with with a group um, that's actually working with campaigns to help them elevate their cybersecurity. And one thing the platforms can and should do is verify the identity of people who are posting information, particularly relating to the election itself, uh, making sure that they're not based in St. Petersburg Russia, as opposed to St. Petersburg, Florida, making sure they're not putting out misinformation. And finally, if we were to see a serious effort by the Russians to interfere with the election, it would not be amiss for the government to retaliate in some way or to preempt it. And there at least has been a reporting that in 2018, uh, the U.S. government did work to shut down a trolling farm in Russia that was being used to attack the election process as a way of firing a shot across the bat. So all of these tools have to be brought into this fight.
1: Mr. Secretary, it's almost ironic then that today we hear from the EU top court that they're worried about surveillance and data analytics, particularly coming from the United States and most notably the National Security Agency. This is all to do with the EU's top court invalidating basically the EU-US privacy shield data laws and pact that was already there. How does this get so complex from a geopolitical perspective? And how can we make sure that surveillance doesn't take a step too far when trying to protect data within America?
7: Well, I mean, this reflects to some degree uh, some differences in approach to privacy between Europeans and Americans. Um, Europeans tend to be very concerned about giving people control over their data. In the U.S., it's tended to be more a question of keeping things confidential or shielded. I'm hopeful that over time we'll come up with an accommodation that respects the fact that both sides of the Atlantic fundamentally believe in human rights. We have some historical reasons to be different. Um, We have done, obviously, surveillance, but we do it in accordance with the law. And in recent years, it's actually been trimmed back a little bit. Ironically, in many countries in Europe now, they're talking about tracking for purposes of detecting contact tracing for the virus, and that would in many ways be more intrusive than what people are doing in the U.S. So I think you know we need to kind of sit down, have a serious discussion about how do we protect our core values, recognizing some differences in the application based on historical issues. This, by the way, is far different from what's happening in China, where obviously they've created almost a surveillance state, and now they're trying to use that and export it overseas, as we see with the national security law they just enacted in Hong Kong. One of the biggest questions
1: swirling this week is whether students can safely return to the classroom this fall. Parents and the companies that employ them well, they are increasingly worried about how the economy will reopen if there is no in-person school for children to attend. Two of the biggest school districts, LA and San Diego, announced this week that students will be going fully online classes. That news coming only a few days before the entire state of California followed suit on Friday. Governor Gavin Newsom said that most public schools in California will not be able to reopen this fall, shifting instead to full-time distance learning. We spoke about all of this with Emily Oster, Brown University Professor of Economics, famed economist, particularly among new mums and dads, who depend on her books to delve into the data around parenting. Expecting better and crib sheet are two of her books. I've lost count of how many people I've had bought those books for. Emily delves into the data, into the risks and rewards to decisions working parents must make. And now she's applying that data-centric approach to the coronavirus pandemic and school reopenings. Emily outlined some of the options, imperfect as they may be, that parents can use to educate kids as schools try to reopen safely.
0: Yeah, I think this is really challenging, and I think that what you just the the statement that we just heard about the um, the resources is really real. Like, we need to if we're going to open schools, we need to be able to do it safely. Uh, at the moment, it seems like kids are relatively low risk. Uh, relative to adults of of COVID, but that doesn't necessarily mean that schools themselves are at low risk. And if we are gonna reopen safely, we need a tremendous amount of additional resources and honestly creative thinking. Um, What I was writing in, in Bloomberg was really about how parents can think about using some of that kinds of creative thinking in the case in which their school is not open all the time, which it seems like increasingly many school districts will have a partial model. Uh, and so helping parents think about, you know, what kind of childcare options do you have and what kind of homeschooling options are we likely to have as we move uh, as we move through the next year.
3: So, Emily, what, what then are some of those options? I mean, for some of us, we're already sort of looking towards a school year that probably won't be complete or in full. There'll be some sort of truncated uh, return. Uh, so at the end of the day, the parents uh, are going to have to be at home with their kids in some form or another and probably going to have to be teaching them in some form or another. How do you do that?
0: Yeah, so I think that you know, one option is to do it, to do it yourself, I guess, um, which is what we all did in the, in the spring. I think that that's likely to be very challenging for a lot of families. It was already challenging. It's likely to become more challenging in the fall when employers are more likely to expect people to be back at work. Uh, one of the kinds of um, solutions that I articulated is uh, uh, getting together with other families whose kids are uh, with your kid, who, for example, other kids in your kid's class. Uh, and perhaps sharing some of the burden of being home with the kids or even hiring, say, a babysitter or a college student, somebody to do some supervision of, of distance learning. That's not a perfect solution uh, and is a solution that costs money, but it's cheaper than a solution like hire your own governess. Um, so my guess is we'll see some parents you know, try to make use of, of solutions like that, try to just, to just make it work. We have a little bit more warning than we did in the spring, So maybe that will be helpful in in facilitating some of this.
4: Emily, one of my bigger concerns about this younger generation is they were already falling behind in the rigor of the math, the science, the economics relative to some other countries. How much further does this now create a gap in how far behind we are falling?
0: Yeah, so I mean I think that the, the biggest concern is really about the inequality within the US. I think these questions of, you know, how do we compare it to, to Europe, I would almost put aside in in the moment. But one of the things we saw in the spring is when we look at some of these metrics of how much math our kids are kids learning, we saw that particularly for kids in low income schools, the drop off in how many, you know, math activities they completed was was tremendous, much, much larger than in higher income schools. So we're already When we think about the summer, we already think about the summer slump and the summer slump promoting inequality. This is a sort of like extreme version of that. I do think as we move to the fall, there are opportunities for us to do better with distance learning. So it's, it's not that there are no online options that are, that are good. You know, we have things like Lexia, like Zern, these online solutions. We just need to find a way to make those possible for, for kids particularly for low-income kids who may not have as many people at home to supervise, to help them, uh, and may not have as good access to the Internet or computers.
1: Emily, I'm pretty sure that the data right now is too early, too raw, but... You, in your books, particularly Crib Sheet, lay out perhaps some of the balancing act when you're a working parent of whether you want nanny versus daycare and what socialization impact that might have. And in the longer term, you came to the conclusion that it didn't have much long-term impact from a social perspective for a child. What do you think the damage might be to what is happening right now in terms of socialization of certain age groups and what this means in the longer term for children?
0: You know, I think it's very hard hard to tell. People keep asking me this: like, is my kid going to be okay? And the answer is like, most of what we know from these other settings would say that there are a lot of different ways to socialize your kid that don't have very systematic uh, positive or negative impacts. So, kids who are in daycare, kids who have a nanny, end up in a sort of similar setting. Having said that, you know, we've never tried this kind of grand experiment, and it is clearly the case that kids need some kinds of socialization. Um, I, unfortunately, I think basically we're gonna have to wait two decades to, to find out the impacts of that, which uh, is, is kind of a long time.
7: So, in
3: the
0: space of this pandemic.
3: As an economist, and you take a look at uh, the, the general slowdown in the economy that uh, is not only attributable to people not being at work, but of course, uh, the connection there with schools, daycare, and all the like being folded into that. Um, is there any way that you can sort of quantify the potential impact if we don't get back up and running uh, in the fall?
0: I am sure that people can do this. I think it's very hard. Uh, it's very hard to think about the, the size of this in some, very, in some very precise way. I think you want to think about it, you know, if half of the, the lack of recovery for female labor force participation is something people have tried, uh, have, have tried to quantify, but I think we're a long way from being able to put numbers on that. That's it
1: for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
0: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the future investor